Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at SkullNight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 146 are Azil. Hello. Grail. Hey. And Gabolatula. Hello. Welcome back. We are here to start a new volume in our reread, volume 32, which will wrap up the Vratanus corner of the series. 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, five volumes of Vratanus. Sheesh. But we're about to head on out of here via boat and then ship. First, before we get into the cover, let's talk about volume 32 just in general. So it was, I never say this, but it was released in 2007. So it kind of like cast your brain back to what you were doing in 2007, right? What's significant about this section of the series, 2007 in particular, it's where we started to see longer hiatuses. I think there was a seven-weeker week, in this year, which was the longest there had been since, I don't know, the 90s or so. Um, between there was never the, any long breaks in the 90s. I mean, if you, unless you count when he was doing other series, but you know, I mean, that's not really, you know what I mean? He was doing something else. Yeah, I think the one I'd marked was the longest since the tr- the transition from Animal House to Young Animal. Yeah, but which he was is doing because ja- he was doing Japan. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. not really. I mean, it's like people say, oh, there was a huge break. Uh, you know, when he was doing uh, Gigantomachia, but I mean, he was mm-hmm. he was doing Gigantomachia. It's not really. He was busy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that- but Berserk was on hiatus. Sure, that's all that means. Yeah, so sure. It's not it's not a Mira calendar. It's a Berserk calendar. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean- um, so this is where things started to get slower in terms of releases. And I, I remember us noticing it more because, yeah, hiatus has happened here and there, uh, but they weren't that, that frequent. And then they became more frequent. This is the start of that more that higher frequency. But we're still talking about a decline from 13 episodes per year down to nine. Nine episodes per year. That's a gift. Come on. That's still pretty quick clip compared to where things eventually got oh, to. Man. So yeah. just something to keep in mind contextually. This is also, if you open up the volume, it's one, it is the first volume to include the brief story summaries at the front, which they start doing here and they still do them now, which is like a one page quick summary of the context for the current circumstance. It's not a full story summary, but if you forgot for a volume or two, what was happening, why Guts was fighting these people, this gives you a really quick clip overview, which is kind of neat. That's because they revamped the the interior design of the volumes, mm. like uh, the page transitions, all that stuff changed with this one. They did that a couple times, but this is one of the bigger ones from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, this is where they had those stylistic between episode title pages, which I really like because previously it would have a black page that said Berserk at the bottom, and that's what would indicate the end of an episode and start of another one. Now they have this very stylish text on the far right or far left. Nice. Looks good. They also stopped putting the episode titles on the art. They, like, removed all that stuff. Mm. So that Mirror's art could shine through. Uh, among all of the redesigns uh, they did, uh, I think it's the best one. Like, the most soulful and well-executed one, definitely. Yeah. Story-wise, this volume is kind of split in two, kind of unevenly, uh, between wrapping up Vertanus on Gut's side and over on Griffith's side. There's a lot in this volume, as I was rereading it, that reminds me of Doldry, just in terms of the battlefield tactics that are on display. You know, the odds are stacked against the Holy Sea Alliance, uh, and Griffith's plan works point by point, kind of, what's the word, subvert the enemy's forces against each other. That that all reminds me of Doldry. 
Um, on top of that, whether it's intentional or not, it, the visuals also made me, you know, think back to the golden age, particularly the poster insert of Griffith, which we'll get to looks like it was, you know, the color palette being limited. I don't know something about it. Just Griffith on a horse rearing up reminds me of the golden age. I think that's intentional too. Uh, let's say it reminds me of a very famous painting of Napoleon. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. That too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. By Jacques-Louis David. Yeah. It's, it's very, I, I mean, I think it's a homage to it. A de- it's deliberate it's one. From, yeah. Yeah. Deliberate one from, uh, from Mura because, uh, the way the horse is rearing up is really, it's not the same because obviously he didn't just copy it, but it's pretty evocative of, uh, of that set of paintings by, by that guy. So, yeah. I didn't think about that. That's really cool. But yeah. I, as soon as you just said that in my mind, I was like, aha. Yeah. That one. This is also a massive spectacle uh, because there's huge armies on both sides where each troop is drawn, if not in detail, then it's at least as distinct outlines. And we're talking like hundreds or thousands in some, some places, you know? Yeah. Uh, and like in the golden age, you get these depictions of the effects of thousands of troops stomping through the battlefield and what that does to troops, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that through Miura's more mature artistic skills that he's developed over time. So thinking back to how he depicted such fights in the golden age versus how he depicts it now, he approaches it differently. You know, it's, it's, the scale feels different. He also, yeah, he also really showed like how massive this conflict mm-hmm. was. He did, he did some pretty massive battles before, but here in terms of sheer number, it's really unprecedented. And that actually contributed in the, cause like you said, we still got 13 episodes that year and, uh, or maybe 14 uh, that year, 13 the next one. Uh, but he, I remember he commented at the time that, uh, he basically took a, took a break. Because of how difficult these mm. scenes were to portray and how long it took for them to draw them, actually. It's even mm. kind of conveyed in the little illustrations that's on the, the dust jacket, which is not in the uh, Dark Horse edition. But you see, uh, how to say, Muran's assistants are dead, hit by <laughs> all of the arrows, and their little ah. spirits are rising up, and Puck is playing the liar. Oh. So yeah, I don't I s- have that one in hand. All I have is this crappy dark horse one. <laughs> Damn, really? You, you don't? You don't? Uh, I mean, you can't visualize the one I'm in. No, I, I know. I'm saying I don't have that one right in front of me. I forgot about it. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's, it's pretty great. It's basically Mira dead on his manuscript with arrows, and you know behind <laughs> him you see the five assistants, and mm-hmm. their little ghosts are, are rising up. So yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, pretty funny because because of that those massive scenes, massive arrows, sure. massive battles. Yeah, yeah, they went over they went overboard to depict the scale of this conflict, but it comes across like if you feel it, you know, through their work, you can feel the scale. Yeah, in a way, you, as I said, you couldn't really not quite the same as in the Golden Age. Mm. Yeah, and it's also battles that's like much bigger because it's all of the Holy Sea Alliance versus mm-hmm. a gigantic Christian empire. So it's also meant to be unprecedented in scale. Yep. Over to the cover itself. Uh, this temporary alliance we get between Guts and Zod is a, a momentous occasion for the series. And I do feel that it doesn't quite capture their pairing. You know, it, it crops out most of Zod and focuses on Guts, because, of course, that's how the, you sell volumes, is put Guts on the cover. I just would have liked to have seen something from a different perspective. Hmm. Um, like, either of the instances of it in this episode with them, like, either being electrocuted or we have this tall panel 
with guts in the DS outstretched, you know, which looks like this, a version of this, but the one in the pages is actually more impressive than this one. Uh, you know, so it's funny. I, I, uh, I really like that illustration. Uh, I think yeah. it's really badass. And I think the way that is cut is like intentional. And I like it like mm-hmm. that. So uh, I actually bought the reproduction for it at the exhibition. <laughs> I really like it. Mm. It's one of my favorite covers. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Did not know that. Now you know. Any other cover comments before we go to the posters? Just that it looks cool and Guts looks all ripped up and ready to... Yeah, this is the roast beef edition of Guts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's all fucked up. Yeah. He's not even finished cooking yet. I know, he's That's still right. medium rare. Yeah, yeah. The red background is really striking, too, to me. That's in my head. I can picture it so vividly, even when I'm not look, looking directly at it, is that the color palette comes across very strongly and memorably. Mm-hmm. On to the posters. We've already discussed this Griffith one. Uh, I don't feel like I have to say much more about it. It's beautiful. I love that uh, most of the paintings we see are more obviously oil. This just looks like, I don't know, this is oil. The watercolor and pencil by the looks of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah. Definitely. Because it's on the other side. We'll get to it, but the Ganeshka one's very clearly oil. Yeah, or acrylic or oil family type. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, the the what is most striking here is, of course, the limited color palette, as we already said, is watercolor, uh, bluish and white. Um, sparking the never-ending debate is, is Griffith's hair white or blue? Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but I also like how the like the sinuous nature of the cape and the 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 pose of the horse. There's all beautiful uh, contours happening here too. Uh, moving on to Ganeshka, his battle armor is on right, so it's a different uh, Ganeshka and his his mode B armor. Um, colors are very striking: purple and orange and red. I remember this um, sticking out to me at the exhibition in particular because of the mm. the orange of the. Yeah. Gold plates of the armor. It was, it was really more vibrant, right? Yeah, yeah, it was even brighter than what you see in the volume. Yeah, yeah, the same yeah. thought. I was like, I remember telling Grail, uh, or Grail telling me rather that the colors were popping so much more than you see in this picture uh, for the original painting he did. Yeah. yeah. Was the Griffith on horseback one, was that there? I don't think it was. I don't think it was. Yeah, not in the one we saw at least. No, yeah, which was, um, it had been cut down in terms of the number of uh, pictures, but I don't think they had selected it. I mean, there are so many of them that they had to make choices. The um, When I'm looking at this picture of Ganeshka with the eyes being kind of this uh, component motif throughout his armor, it made me really wonder about that eye. Like, um, I wonder if it's related to the fact that his life was driven by fear as we ultimately learn. Or it's a reminder of how his fog power means his, his eyes are everywhere that the fog is, you know, like his omnipresence through the fog. Mm. Well, I wondered about it because it's, it's, you kind of you can't get over it. The eyes are everywhere in that motif, you know? Right. Yeah. In that adaptation of like the evil eye type thing. The motif like, you mm-hmm. see in Middle Eastern art and stuff? Maybe. I, I, I could be pulling this out of my behind, but... It's not a bad idea, but I think like the inspiration for for the Christians and Ganeshka is definitely more Indian than Middle Eastern. So I'm not sure. And I was, 
I think I checked before to see if there was some kind of eye motif in like Hindu uh, culture or some stuff like that. I don't remember finding anything especially convincing or that popped at me. So I'm not sure, but I do like the interpretation that it means he's kind of all thing and mm-hmm. you can't hide anything from him. And it fits, yeah, it fits the idea that he was like most such leaders would be kind of paranoid and yeah. wanting to control everything, to be aware of everything. So yeah, I kind of like that. Walter, when you were talking about his eyes, I thought you meant his actual eyes on his face, and I noticed that they're kind of whited out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I had just assumed it was for the illustration to make him look more fearsome, but now that yeah. you mentioned it, I don't know. Yeah, I I also I agree with you, Grail. I think it's just meant to show him as some kind of monstrous. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, fearsome at least, which he does look in this in this picture, you're not... And also, it reinforces the fact he's not human. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Well, let's move on to the insert before we get to the actual episode. And it's this uh, single panel of Griffith on the horizon as the sun comes up. Or is it coming down? Is it, I can't remember. Up. up. Thank you. Yeah. Rising sun. What I like about this, of course, is uh, the shadow that's cast by it. There's the, it looks very dramatic with the lighting behind it, but it also casts this really long shadow of him across the ground. A memorable moment. And a kind of a weird abstract moment for Griffith and Guts as well, I think. With the, Their eyes are on each other for the first time in a while. Uh, but we'll get to that later in the volume. But it's a memorable moment from that part of the series. That's it. Moving on to episode... 276. Is that right? 77. No. 77. Thank you. We're about 100 episodes away from where we are right now in the series, by the way. Catching up. Uh, episode 277 is Desperate Attack. In a flashback, Zod sets out to fight Ganeshka's forces in Vertanis. Locus and Grunbeld warn him of the dangers since no attack on Ganeshka seems to be effective. Zod passes by Sonya, who tells him that in the coming fight, He'll have to choose between being a beast or a warrior, and so will his counterpart. As the memory fades, we return to the present with Zod underwater right next to Guts. And they emerge with Zod flying and quickly coming to a truce with Guts as he devises a way to attack Ganeshka together on top of Zod, using the Dragon Slayer to pierce his only weak point as identified by Shirke. The attack blows a hole through Ganeshka's forehead and breaks his connection to the fog, scattering his form, and somewhere far from the battlefield, we see Ganeshka reeling, holding his forehead and cursing his attackers. Uh, I summarized it, of course, very quickly because I imagine we're going to go pretty deeply on each little moment here because this is a momentous episode for a variety of reasons. Having Guts and Zod work together to take down Ganeshka is like, I mean, consider the roller coaster ride we've already been on through Vertanis. And we commented on this in the podcast a number of times how there's this sense of rising action and rising conflict throughout. If you think back to fighting the Daka, then th- fighting the Makara, then fighting Daiba, then fighting Daiba and the Kundalini to fighting Ganeshka, you see it like it keeps rising and rising. And he ends with, how do you top that? How do you make that even bigger? We'll bring Zod out and we'll work together to defeat the fog form. Like, geez, he just pulled out all the stops. It's absolutely incredible fireworks display uh, of an ending to Vertanis. Um, but also... It has some of my favorite lines in the entire series. It's just, and it happens on a couple pages, you know, with Guts. When Guts realizes that his sword is right next to Zod's neck and he has a chance to cut his head off right here, 
you know, Zod senses that blood thirst and says, your urge to kill makes my neck bristle in ecstasy. It's a very tough guy moment. Um, and it's just funny and almost cute how they interact with each other in this tough guy way. Yeah. Uh, and Guts also is like picking on Zod's performance against Ganeshka. He's like, he's like heckling him at a sports match. It's like, you're getting torn up out there. What are you doing? You know? I, I love how Guts doesn't miss a beat and is immediately talking shit. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, he immediately switches gears to like, you're doing shitty out there, man. <laughs> um, but anyway, seeing these two tag teaming like this is a momentous and surprising thing. It's like, it's like a wrestling match where the two opponents like work together to take down a common enemy, but temporary alliances like that are often done in stories. Right. But nowhere particularly as a motive for me, at least between as between guts and Zod um, and coloring everything for me, as I reread these is Sonya's line that guts is someone that Zod admires um, because it's not just about their rivalry. You know, it's also that Zod sees himself probably in guts a little bit. And so it kind of just colors everything. Um, I'm not going to hog the show, the floor the whole time, but I did want to say one more thing before I just open it up to the floor. And as I was reading this, this time I was thinking about why even have this flashback at all to Sonia? Because ultimately what it serves is Zod hesitates when guts presents his plan. And then he remembers what Sonia says, but he could have just simply taken guts advice instead and not involve Sonia at all. So, so why do that? Why have this thinking back to confirm that this is a viable plan? I think it softens Zod a bit, like intentionally, right? And it also draws attention to this conflict with Zod and Guts, but the same, which is warrior and beast, you have a choice to make, uh, which is something that Zod reminds his own troops of at the end of this battle, that they're here to engage as warriors of the Falcon, not indulge in their cravings. So it's like a, it's like a rise above it moment for Zod to choose this path as a warrior, uh, which is also reflective of, of Guts. Uh, he has the same exact conflict at the end of this sequence in Vertana. So I, I had this moment of wondering, huh, I wonder why he went that way. And then figuring out, ah, that's actually pretty smart to do it this way. Very clever, very clever storytelling. Well, I really like the flashback portion as well. Um, visually, it, it's kind of distinct from the rest. It's kind of bare bones, uh, obviously, to show that it's a a flashback mm-hmm. and it's it's a kind of a break from like all the the chaos and and the crazy detail that surrounds this moment um it also shows zod um i mean we've gotten to see him alone quite a few times and see his thought process and everything but it's it's kind of rare to see him uh interact with his uh you know, fellow apostles. And even when he's among fellow apostles, it seems like he's just kind of, kind of doesn't give a shit. He's just like, "Eh, all right, you know, I'm not in it for, you know, camaraderie. I'm, I just Mm -hmm. want, you know, he, he's just here to do the job. Exactly. Hmm. You know, he does his own uh, thing. Exactly. And, uh, it's interesting watching him interact with Sonya again. Cause, uh, when we, we see Zod, usually he's, He's he doesn't smile, you know. He has a little <laughs> cute little smile. It's like, oh, I guess that's how uh, prophecy works. All right, and uh, <laughs> that, and that interaction there, those panels, it's almost like guts is doing it. That's exactly how guts would respond. He closes his eyes and smirk like that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Exactly. What's interesting about it to me is that it shows Zod is uh, maybe a little more enlightened than even people like Granbel or Locus 
where he respects Sonia's ability. Like he understands there's value to the kind of power she has. And he doesn't, that's why he doesn't dismiss her. And that's reinforced when you see Mule after that telling her she's, uh, she's, how to say, not afraid. Like he's surprised she's not afraid to speak to him like that. And because she's Sonia, she's like, huh? Why, why did you say that? But, mm-hmm. uh, I find it interesting that Zod would respect her. And it also, I mean, it works in the way that he agrees to work with Guts because she said so. Otherwise, he might have dismissed him. And I think it's, uh, I think it's actually plausible. Uh, even though he he respects Gus's fighting ability, he might not have actually uh, taken him seriously at just the idea that he could just uh, pierce uh, Kanishka with his sword, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think it works pretty well in that regard. Walter, you talked a little bit about how that scene made Zod seem softer. And I think he does, his face physically seems a little bit softer, which is so interesting because we're in the middle of this epic battle and uh, kind of the a culmination of his relationship with Guts up until this point. Uh, it's, you know, always been so tense and fraught and uh, seeing his face not, you know, having that bloodlust or having his brow furrowed and concentration is, is kind of a nice, uh, a nice break. And I didn't realize how, you know, as a reader, how much I wanted to see that side of him. <laughs> I know. It's so, it's crazy how little material we have of Zod like this and in the moment Zod, because every time we see him, he's engaged in battle or about to be engaged in a battle or in the process of drawing a sword on guts, you know, like, and this is, Hmm? I was going to say, more importantly, when you usually see him, he's the enemy. Yes, true. That's, that's the difference here. He's, he's with guys working with him to defeat mm-hmm. a bigger threat. But 99% of the time, and it probably would have been that way for the rest of the series as well, uh, he would have been the bad guy. The guy that's really looking to kill you and that you have to defeat. And, and here it's a very rare exception to that. Yeah. Gobs, you mentioned it, but I wanted to focus on it a little bit, which is, and it's just a single page interaction between Locus Grunbeld and, and Zod. And it's, it's rare to get a, pos- a, a different apostle's insight into, into Zod like this. And, and what they're commenting on is stuff we already knew that he is enigmatic, that he doesn't fit in among them really. And they're not saying he's an outsider. He's just an enigmatic person. No. Well, they so um, don't really say enigmatic actually. It's more like unfathomable. Okay. Regarding his bloodlust. Because that kind of commentary. Yeah, but it's it's nice to have confirmation from outside observers of him that you know our perspective of Zod is is the same, and also that even though he's found a new purpose in this world from when we saw him back in Volume Seventeen, you know he still doesn't quite fit in. He's still not exactly at home here. You know. What I like about it is that Grumbelt is basically a Zon fat boy. Yeah. Whereas Locus tries to warn him in earnest. Uh, is like, oh, come on, it's Zod. He can mm-hmm. do anything. And I found that, that's what I found cool about this. Mm-hmm. That shows that he stands above even these guys in terms of his uh, legend and what he can do and so on and so forth. Beyond all these cool things with Zod, like this uh, visually, what's happening with Zod and Guts when he gets on top of him, there's this tall panel of course, with them, uh, him finally mounting the Dragon Slayer up like that is similar to the cover we have uh, with Zod ready to go. 
very exciting pairing here. And then these several two-page spreads of them actually executing the move wordlessly as Ganeshka, you know, attempts a lightning attack on them or attempts successfully does a lightning attack on them. I love all these little panels. Like, it's super, super action-packed. Yeah, remember the lightning effect on this two-page spread as they actually go through Ganeshka? This was an effect that came across much more strikingly in the uh, exhibition because the white of that lightning is like, what do you call it? Not white out, but like ultra white paint mm-hmm. on top of the no, art I itself. think he actually was using white out. Okay. Either way, it's just super, super white on the other, otherwise, you know, pen work. And uh, it's pretty cool looking in person. It almost gave it like a 3D effect. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he used white out a lot for a lot of effects that's that's the mm-hmm. benefit of seeing the original manuscripts you can see a ton of this stuff which is removed from the final publication there's one thing i didn't mention and i kind of scum went by it quickly was that shirke you know she's exhausted from everything that's happened but she is urged by guts she has to come up with the weakness like immediately she needs to know where you're supposed to aim this you know it's a hybrid weapon they've created with guts and zod and she kind of squints and and seem guesses that it's uh, it's his brow between his eyes, and, and even before that, she talks about how Ganishka's form itself. She deduces how he's able to change size and shape his will at, at will, which is because he's controlling water and wind, uh, like a magic user might, or like how Serpico and Isidro's weapons function, uh, or how the Kundalini functioned. So it makes his apostle form very particular very unique because uh, it's using it's using the same principles that we've learned about through other things well he's but in, in a different this way. case he's using magic though he's not that that's one of the cases that's even maybe the only case where he's actually using magic and not just i think he or at least enhancing what he can do with his episode form with magic right which is why that's... when they when they strike him down we cut to uh, him being remote in his quarters with that um, scar on his forehead because uh, as she explains and I agree with you it's, it's a very interesting actually part of it the way she's able to deduce what he's doing basically mm-hmm. she's gathering these things against his astral form basically astral projecting and then managing to do that and it's kind of a, an interesting hybrid use of his apostle power and probably some magic that uh, Daiba taught him basically yeah later um Daiba will wonder how this is even possible. How how was this? How were they able to do this to Kanenka's the next episode? Mm. Um, but it's really it's because Shirke identified it. Guts had the right weapon, and he got there through Zod. So it's this like unprecedented tag team of, you know, traditional magic principles plus apostle plus magically imbued weapon or darkness imbued weapon. Well, the definitive um, thing is really the fact. Uh, yeah, Guts Guts Dragon Slayer. Because yes. of his years spent as a black swordsman, haunted by uh, evil ghosts and so on, that really made a difference. Mm-hmm. So what I yeah, what what's very striking to me is that Mira managed to reuse, not long after the cliffhoff, not so long after it, managed to reuse that concept in a very in a way that feels very natural, uh, but. At the same time, unexpected to yeah to to find a weakness for Ganishka that otherwise wouldn't be there to the point where the apostles are powerless against him. Well, I surprisingly don't have much more to say, uh, but uh, one of my favorites this episode, uh, two of my favorite characters working together in an unprecedented way uh, to take down a uh, big fog guy, old man Thundercloud. Yeah, and I mean, 
the artwork is crazy. The two-page spreads are crazy. Ganeshka is himself in that cloud form. He managed to create his crazy opponent. And yeah, to have these two guys working together, it's also an exceptional case. So you got an exceptional situation on top of an exceptional situation with great artwork, great lines, uh, great action. I mean, what more mm-hmm. can one ask? It's a, it's really a, a fan favorite moment for sure. Yep. On to the next one. All right. So, oh yeah, there's one more thing I wanted to say about it actually, about the, um, the way Darkos translated the title for, for the episode. Uh, which you reminded me of, Walter. They translated it as human bullet instead of desperate attack, which is what Pola translated at the time. So the reason they did that is that the word in Japanese for the title is nikudan, which literally translates to meat bullet. Uh, <laughs> and its meaning is pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a suicidal attack in which a soldier uh, throws himself at the enemy. The actual word comes from the title of a novel that was written at the turn of the 20th century about the Russo-Japanese War. It's a contraction of a longer phrase and really just refers to soldiers charging headfirst to engage in close-quarter combat, usually because they don't have enough ammunition or they lack proper equipment. So, for example, you know, you charge to plant explosives on a tank directly because you don't have an anti-tank weaponry, you don't have artillery or anything like that. And that war became common enough that it was even used uh, by the Japanese military during World War II. So anyway, um, yeah, because Pola understood the context surrounding the expression, she translated it as desperate attack, which is especially fitting here since desperation is really what characterizes such tactics. But at the time Dark Horse published the volume, if you looked up that word in an online dictionary, which is, I remember because I did it, it just spat out human bullet. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they went with, uh, even though it sounds awkward and anachronistic in English. So they didn't think much about it. So if anyone wonders why it's like that in Dark Horse, uh, that's because of that. And uh, yeah, it's not a very good translation for the title. Wow. Well, kudos to Puella <laughs> for understanding the context there. Well, I mean, it's just it's it's just a matter of being you know familiar with the language itself. I think, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's just just worth pointing out. Before you jump, I I remembered one thing as you were discussing it. Um, When we first saw this episode, this was a a rare episode where instead of a page preview, we got a single panel preview. This this is back in the time when they used to actually show us a little bit of a preview from Young Animal about what the next episode would be. And all we got was this one panel of Zod from the very top of the start of the episode with his back to us kind of slightly turning his head. And um, it's not worth much now, but to, to remind people of what it was like back then, that's all we had. And at the time, many of us, myself included, thought it was going to be a Zod flashback uh, because it's actually unclear. This weird white paneling in the background, the, the white background, uh, and it interrupts what looks like Zod falling from the sky into the ocean, you know, crashing into guts in a very desperate way in the previous episode. It's like, oh, no. Oh no, Mira only does flashbacks. Flash before his eyes. That's right. Mira only does flashbacks like this when characters are going to die, right? Right? So like, oh no, Zod. Um <laughs> but of course that only lasted for the duration of the preview to be uh talked about and then the actual episode landed and it's clear that's not the case, but a lot of excitement at the time uh when this preview landed. Well, good job on the young animal uh interns part for <laughs> for teasing out uh the episode like yep. that. <laughs> One panel at a time. 
Over to you. Anyway, so yeah, next episode is Selling Sail. So uh, with Ganeshka defeated, Dayaba orders his troops to retreat. He's shocked that anyone could hurt the Emperor, like you mentioned, Walter. Um, then Gas Group runs up to where he crashed, but Zod rises up before they even get there. He taunts Gus, threatening to kill him if he can't stand up. Shockingly, Gus does manage to get up, but he's badly burned. He's really in a bad state. Zod tells him he'll kill him another time when they can properly immerse themselves in the battle. But one of his lackeys intervenes, insisting they should kill him right now. However, he gets choked half to death while told they are, they are to, cha- to wage war and not indulge in their urges. As they're about to leave, however, it's Gus who speaks up, asking if Griffiths is there. This changes things for Zod, because if Gus intends to fight their master, they'll rip him apart immediately. Tension reaches its peak when Serpico suddenly intervenes, reminding Guts what he said earlier. He doesn't care about fights between monsters. So looking back at Casca, Guts lets it go and tells the apostles to bugger off. As they fly away and the group breathes a, a sigh of relief, Guts falls his conscience face first into the ground. He's only stood up through sheer animosity against the apostles, but he can't actually do anything. As they climb onto a rowboat, Puckner sees that Azan is sleeping at the back, but everyone ignores him and they leave the shore and approach the seahorse. As they do, Gus briefly regains consciousness and catches a glance of a lone figure st- standing on the cliffs with the rising sun on his back. It's Griffiths staring back at him. Gus passes out once more and the episode ends. So, I don't have a lot of things to say beyond that summary, but there are two key moments to me. The first is a confrontation with Zod, which is very tense and features a rather reckless posturing from Guts, and then a bold intervention from Serpico to try and defuse the tension. Of course, he wouldn't be Guts if he didn't stand up to, to the Apostles, but in this case, Zod knows he can't back it up. And conversely, Zod's decision to spare him reinforces the ambiguity of his character. So what's interesting here is, uh, as you, we mentioned earlier, about softening Zod up. Here he's shown as a monster that's really ready to destroy Guts. At the same time, he really deliberately is trying not to kill him because he, he wants to fight him later on in a proper setting. So to me, that really gives some death to his character. And he had been getting death, I would say, even since... Uh, Volume 26, and that continues that, that trend. The second big moment in that is that exchange of looks between uh, Gus and Griffiths as the group leaves. It's a pretty faithful uh, near-miss that is very powerful despite being worldless and from a distance. So I really love those pages. Um, and other than that, there's two little moments that I found funny. The first one is Azan's rejoining of the group is both accidental, it's very low-key. <laughs> and it's funny to me that it's one of the times when Puck has something important to say, but he just gets ignored by everyone. No one cares. He's like, eh, okay, I don't care either. And um, and also, I, I love how the Daka uh, retreat with the fog at the beginning. I think that makes them look extra creepy. And I also like uh, the little details of Daiba telling uh, his troops to remotely kill those that get left behind. Mm-hmm. I think he just sheds some light into how poorly regarded they are. They're basically cannon fodder, even though they're monstrous troops that are complicated to, to create. So yeah, I like the little added touch. And that's uh, that's about all I have to say. The detail about Daiba ordering the remaining, the outlying Daka to be basically urged to kill themselves is um, 
It, it, I don't think I'd noticed it before, and it's fucking dark. Like, I just, yeah. again, feel really bad for the Taka. It's ghoulish. Um, yeah. Uh, and, of course, because they're basically like a secret weapon kind of thing. Um, and the result of that is there's no monsters left in the city. Quote, unquote, monsters left in the city when they, they see it later. In the, in the coming episode, we'll see, you know, Owen's touring the city, and it looks like just fucked up looking cushions in the Daka armor, right? Because the monstrous part has been... It fades away upon death, just like the Makara would resemble whales after their death. Or, yeah. You know, like apostles lose their forms as well. Um, but it's fucking gross. Uh, they have to kill themselves. And they're urged to, right? Through mind control, presumably. Yeah. To do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, yeah the, the fact that Serpico stops the fight is always surprising to me. Because it's such a ballsy moment for him to stand between these two behemoths, right? Zod... Yeah, we went to the exhibition. We know how big Zod is. <laughs> and uh, Guts, you know, to stand in the middle of those two. Uh, quite a moment for Serpico. A moment that lone of sweat drop is very telling. Yeah. <laughs> I really also love, and it's just a small panel, this 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 panel of Zod where he sees, that says, we'll see to our duel another time. Uh, it's a very, like, humanizing look at Zod. And I just love the way they... Rendered his fur, I guess, is what it is. I don't know. It's just a really cool panel of Zod. Looks very introspective. Mm. Uh, yeah, and yeah, the Zod grabs the the apostle that wants to eat him. It, it was very similar to Flora's mansion when uh, a similar thing kind of happened. Yeah, he crushes uh, the, the skull of the pig one. Exactly. And here he grabs his throat and his tongue is flapping back and forth. His forked tongue is flapping back and forth mm. comically. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. It's worth mentioning also that we see, it's a short panel, but when that stands up, we see also that many apostles are jumping back out of the water or flying out, out of the water. So mm. it's a little window into the kind of resilience apostles have where they get zapped and you might think, you know, half of them are burning, you might think they die, but many of them survive that kind of hit where even Guts is basically barely alive. But these guys, yeah, they can take it because they're, they're monsters. They regenerate. Yeah, I don't think I noticed that panel before. I see Zod rising up, and then there's these other splashes, and then we see other flying apostles rising from the water as well. Yeah, you're right. Good call. Isidro has this funny moment, too, where he's ready to stand in, <laughs> you know, nominally, and say, I'll take you on, too. <laughs> uh, good luck with that, kid. And uh, meanwhile, Puck is saying, well, time to go. And he has his bags packed because mm. he knows yeah. what's coming. And in case it comes to that, he's like, fuck this. I'm out. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, this is uh, the episode title here is Setting Sail. And uh, just a reminder contextually of where the community was. Many people were like, finally, they're getting on the boat. Longest seaport delay ever. What the fuck? They're finally going to get on a boat? Uh, which is, of course, ironic because the same people a month or two later would be like, wait, they're still on a boat. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. think it even took a, a, m a month or two, honestly, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's funny. It's uh, it really exemplifies the kind of attitude people had. And I guess still have about, about a series like this, where we just saw like a, a, a crazy sequ sequence, which you mentioned earlier, Daka, Makara, Daiba, Kundalini, Ganishka, Zalengas, and, some people, all they had to say throughout all of this is, oh, when are they going to get on the fucking boat? When are they going mm -hmm. to get on the thing? And then two episodes after they finally get to the ship, 
They're like, oh, when are they getting off? When are we going to see a film? And so it's really like, guys, the point is the journey and what you see and what the people are experiencing. Like, the adventure is a point, not just getting the treasure at the end. It's the adventure. If you don't have the adventure, it's not fun. And, and yeah, so that's something that I remember it going on as far back as uh, Flo's mansion. That kind of impatience and people complaining about the trolls and complaining about the thing, even complaining about yep. the Bezix armor, complaining about everything. It was it was Enoch. From what our that the thing started to get rancorous among certain people around Enoch because the idea was, we already know we're heading to Elfhelm. Why are we taking this detour to Enoch Village for this like subquest to help these villages? Yeah. Why don't we head straight to Elfhelm? Why don't and we cut certain- like a hard cut and there there? Yeah, exactly. Um, I just think certain people might just want a Wikipedia entry more than a manga series, an episodic manga series. You just want to, if you just want the plot, you should just wait a couple of years and, and read the Wikipedia entry like for the story. notes. Yeah, and that's what you want. I get it. You're curious, but you're not in it for the ride. Many of us are here for the ride itself, so. Yeah, and it's that's also all. like the, the story progresses in unexpected ways, like like every good story. If you know, if you already know everything is going to happen, uh, what's the point of reading? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's also one of these cases where I think it's a matter of people's expectations and maybe even like media literacy, honestly, where you should understand like how a story is supposed to work and what you're supposed to get out of it. And it's not just, yeah, I mean, getting from point A to point B, then, you know, getting to the end and okay, I'm done moving on. You know, that's, that's not how it's supposed to work. Moving on to 279, is that right? That's right, yeah. Unless you guys have more stuff to say. Oh, yeah, sorry. So the next episode is called Great Invasion Part 1. This episode begins with Sir Owen taking in the sights of the mess left behind from the events of the night before. Owen, as well as a few of the Vertanis Holy Sea forces, are left completely confused, trying to get the story straight. There were rumors of monsters, which uh, all have seemed to have disappeared. Since all the higher-ups are at the party, the troops are unsure of what to do, hearing of an oncoming Kushan attack. When the Kushan appear, their sheer number shocks the, the Holy See army onlookers. Meanwhile, on the sidelines, the Tapasa discuss whether or not they should alert the inhuman demon lord Ganishka of the presence of one of the Falcon's troops. Silat does not weigh in, remaining in silent comp- contemplation. Owen notices that the Holy Sea forces are surrounded and that their size is actually a disadvantage because when the fight slips into chaos, it'll be completely uncontrollable. Meanwhile, Ganishka is being briefed by one of his commanders, who then asks him for orders. Ganishka holds his scarred forehead and as, as if he was having a terrible headache, and he says, Purge them. The Kushan fire a large volley of arrows that rain down the ho- on the Holy Sea forces. The battle has begun. So, this episode, um, I, I really like the, the scene in the beginning that shows Owen looking at the wreckage. It reminded me a, a little bit of Farnese and the Holy Iron Chain Knights looking on at the aftermath of the eclipse. 
In the grand scheme of the Berserk universe, Owen is just a normal dude, and uh, it's a good reminder that most inhabitants of the Be- of uh, Berserk aren't used to otherworldly chaotic sights just yet. Mm. You know, it reminds um, me of Raban in volume uh, 17, when he's uh, looking at the plague towns, the fact that the hills are deforested just before yeah. the killings of the king's death. Same kind of like uh, looking over the carnage and being nervous and thinking that things are not looking good. Right, right. Yeah. The uh, the the whale corpse was uh, mentioned earlier before. I really like that. Um, so uh, this is a scenery-heavy episode filled with a lot of beautiful architecture, uh, shots of armies and entire battlefields. We're, we are treated to not one, but two page, two two-page spreads of the overwhelming Kushan army. Um, I, I, I really admire uh, Mira's patience and dedication to, to creating like such an aesthetically pleasing composition. Um, it, it's one thing to to say, okay, I'm going to draw a billion soldiers and I just want it to look crowded. But, like, they're in perfect formation. Uh, it's, you know, they're, it's uniform in a realistic way. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and and uh, another great aspect of the art of this episode is the, the fantastic facial expressions such as uh, Lord Van Diemen's sort of a helpless stare at the massive army, uh, Owen as the arrows start falling from the sky, and of course the the famous Ganishka facepalm shot that we've used <laughs> in uh, <laughs> a yeah. couple reaction images. Well, it was Azil's avatar for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, my, my final note is that... Uh, about Silat's scene. It's it's very short, but it's compelling. I feel like he says so much without saying a single word. Uh, you can tell that the gears are turning as he's standing there, unsure of his own allegiances. Both Owen and Silat are, are great examples of how even side characters in Berserk were given quite a bit of nuance. Uh, each one of them feels like a real person with a real life in, inhabiting... like. This this grand universe. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Good yeah, episode. for real. I like that even though the Tapasa realize how powerful and monstrous uh, Ben of the Falcon is, they still don't think they could possibly change the course of the battle when they actually do, you know. So that's also interesting that even when they witnessed what these guys were capable of, they still underestimated how big of a difference apostles can make, essentially. So that was interesting to me before the battle. And um, I would have to agree with you, really cool to see the reverted Daka and Pishasha. I really like the way Mura at the beginning shows the soldiers in the morning, not being sure what's going on, and just showing the kind of chaos and disorganization that a large number of troops can have when the higher-ups are missing. Of course, massive army, like we mentioned earlier, the arrows... Uh, blackening the sky, so fucking cool, and um, and yeah, we also see Ganishka's reasoning for like 
how war works and the fact having overwhelming numbers is always going to beat any kind of strategy. And that's also interesting in its, its own way. So, yeah, a lot of uh, small touches and, of course, that artwork, which is really crazy. It's interesting that Kanishka himself comes out for this one. You know, presumably, he has not done that. Uh, presumably, he's been operating out of Wyndham and having his other generals do a lot of the invasions. Yeah, I think he's... But he came... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that's because this is meant to be the decisive battle. Was yeah. it going to seize, like, to completely destroy uh, the alliance that was formed against them? And so he wanted to be there in case. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting because for him, it's a series of bad coincidences that really fucked him up. First, you get Guts uh, swarming his effort at the ball. Then he actually managed to be himself be defeated. Daiba is also defeated with the Kundalini killed. And then when they launch their troops, Griffiths intervenes, they still manage to, to beat them up. So it's really like, it went from a perfect plan that was foolproof in every way uh, to something <laughs> they strangely, like in a fluke, got defeated. And that's because you can't go against the God Hand. That's right. I, actually, I was just going to say, to add to what you said, I, knowing what we know about... Uh, you know, the dread emperor himself. I don't think he would have showed up unless he thought it was a sure win. Sure. And uh, this was supposed to be his big crowning glory moment. And uh, it all got swept away. Yeah, this episode and the next really bleeds so seamlessly together that I, I tend to think of the events as one. But um, it's more evident in the next episode that you can kind of sense like an alternate history here where the Falcons did not intervene, and this would have truly been it for the continent, right? If the if forces did not, that would be it for Midlands, not even Midlands, excuse me, the whole continent's Holy Sea Alliance's forces, because they're all nicely clustered right here, about to set off so confidently to take over, uh, to take back, to claw back parts of Midland. But actually, what they really are is being set up to fail right here, right now, this yeah. moment. Because they also underestimated how huge Ganishka's armies were, and that's where... Uh, it's not called an empire for no reason. He's got numbers that are higher than all of the Holy Sea Alliance combined. So, yeah, they thought it's just like Midland was defeated because they were weak. And it would be easy for all of them together to, to defeat, beat back the cushions. When actually, even all of them together, in that circumstance, they might not have been able to do it. Even yeah, I, I, Go ahead. Even without being taken by surprise and so on. I said it before, I think it was volume 29 or so, just the sheer lack of intel on the uh, Vertanis side, Vendemian in particular, Mr. Moneybags, can't have good intelligence. Like, he can't have people, you know, hundreds of leagues away reporting back, oh, you guys got a lot of troop movements coming your way. <laughs> reporting you know? back with what, carrier pigeons? Something, something. Somebody <laughs> should do it. I'm just saying this is an insane amount of troops to, to not know that they are coming, you know, to not be prepared at all. Yeah, the problem is you got the Bakiraka. Uh, True. Slicing off any curious little guy. And uh, yeah, that's and all, of course, the actual people in Midland fighting back were all incorporated into Griffith's uh, troops. And these mm -hmm. also did not communicate with the Holy Sea Alliance because, of course, they wanted to have their big moment. So I think that also participates in this, is that, for example, let's say Mule had been decimated, his, his men and everything. Some survivors could have made their way back 
uh, to the Holy See Alliance eventually and inform them. Maybe, maybe not. You know what I mean? But all of these guys who might have become informants were instead saved and incorporated into Griffith's troops. Yeah, even that, though, is a... It doesn't really matter. It was. It's all done for the dramatic effect of being completely overwhelmed and outmatched by the arrival of the Kushans in perfect formation, uh, which I think they do a great job. Amira does a great job of setting up that that chaos. You feel it when you're trying to follow the dialogue on this one page, where um, Owen is walking through the town, uh, out the he, he goes out to the past the bridge and the dialogue bubbles are all over the place in this very chaotic way because they themselves are not ready. They are in chaos themselves because their commanding structure is, has been dismantled uh, in the previous night, which we get a better sense of in the next episode, but you get it here too. I, I like that the dialogue bubbles themselves kind of spell out the chaos of the moment, but even before the troops arrive, the enemy arrives. I actually really like that shot uh, with the perfectly formed ranks of the Kushan mm-hmm. coming up against the scattered groups of the Holy Sea Alliance. And then below that, just like the fisheye lens shot of Lord Vendimian yeah. going, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the fisheye thing. I wanted to, I wanted to call it widescreen, but it's more than widescreen because the lens is kind of curved in a way. It's like you're seeing more than you should be able to do to emphasize the the scope of it. Yeah, that's like a big done-goofed moment. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Poor Van Damien. Poor Van Damien. All my (laughs) money. All my troops. Uh, Yeah, I don't have much more to say about this episode. Most of what I have to say kind of, again, it bleeds in seamlessly to the next. So we'll just roll on over to the next unless anybody else has something else to say. The next episode is Great Invasion Part 2. The Kushan continue to push their attack on the Holy See's alliance of armies as it attempts to protect Vratanis. Mounted Kushan forces on horseback and elephants trample the city's def- defenseless defenders underfoot, and followed by pikemen who begin thinning out the forces even further. Sir Owen looks on in horror as the assault continues with seemingly no possible resistance. As part of the army tries to draw back into the city, he thinks to himself that the attack from the previous night was merely a strategic maneuver to cause further confusion, and that in a contest between the two, the Kushan army is sure to win out. But suddenly, out of nowhere, leaders of the Kushan army are losing their heads. Far off in some distant part of the battlefield, Irvine is sowing some chaos of his own. He knocks several arrows at a time, killing off key members of the opposition with each loosing of his bow. Without directions from their generals, the massive Kushan forces are soon thrown into disarray and advance into the moat surrounding Vertanis. To make things worse for the Kushan, Rakshas begins sticking the armored elephants with some kind of drugged dart which makes them go into a frenzy, trampling several members of the Kushan army. Silat and the Tapasa look on from afar as the tide turns. One of them says, Young master, this might be... Dot, 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 exclamation point. Far off, on a sequestered shoreline, not far from the city, we see what appears to be some capsized boats. Inside one of the boats is an armored hand that gives the signal to advance, and mysterious armored knights on horseback emerge from the hollow interior of the boat, making their way to the decisive battle. Uh, So this might be the shortest uh, (laughs) episode summary I've ever done, because there are no 
there, there's no fewer than I think five uh, two page spreads in this episode, which is like just kind of even hard to fathom. I don't think there are many episodes that uh, have this many uh, two page spreads in them, and these are all you know massive sprawling um, fight scenes between these two gargantuan armies. And like Gob was saying in the previous episode, Mir really emphasizes the scale and just the massive nature of who is fighting here. And I just love the detail. And I just think that it's an incredible effort to, uh, you know, you really appreciate the, the love and care that went into creating these compositions. Yeah, the, I mean, the artwork again is crazy. I love that one of the elephant, the two page spread of the <laughs> elephants trampling the soldiers. It was oh, great. Yeah. That's the one I wanted to talk about was, uh, I can't remember which interview, but Amira talked about how it's important for your actions on, on page to have weight and you can feel the weight of it as a reader. It's part of why the Dragon Slayer works is it's so heavy when it swings. What would that do? You know, what would that do to someone? And here he shows uh, most manga would do the top half of that pitch. It would say, yep, elephants are trampling the dudes. The bottom half shows the actual effect on humans in armor of what being crushed by an elephant would look and feel like, right? So it's that viscera, the visceral effect of that as well. So you feel it, not just see it, but you feel it as well through that kind of insane melding of skin, bone, and armor in that bottom panel there. Right. And like what you were talking about before, Walter, it, it does very much recall the Golden Age mm-hmm. and how the the epicness of, of the wars, you know, taking place were kind of a backdrop to the human experience also. And even if it was just like, you know, quote unquote extras or just like one-off people, you could see how the horrors of war were really taking their toll and, and really do, you know, it creates this terrible atmosphere. Um especially for characters like Owen, who are sort of the only, the, the, the everyman who are witnessing this firsthand. Wow, the everyman, I don't know. He's a noble. <laughs> well, he's, he's being used as our lens into that crowd. I'm just, so. I'm just saying he's not a grunt. <laughs> a very yeah. rich, very rich uh, everyman. I'll exactly, say. yeah. <laughs> he's doing all right. With his He-Man haircut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, it's um, a haircut from back in the day. Hmm. Absolutely. And I, speaking of Owen, I was going to touch on this saying how I love how Mira, after focusing very, very, you know, concretely on the main cast and how they're kind of going on their journey and they're about to embark on their next leg of their adventure, we're kind of pulling back and getting a bigger picture look of the politics and the side of the war and, uh, you know, how that's happening while that group is leaving to give you a much better understanding of what's happening. And I, I, I thought that was a great and obviously very deliberate decision on his part, but including Owen and Salat in the same episode and their two perspectives, I thought was a uh, terrific. I, uh, I really mm. enjoyed reading that. I really, I really liked the commentary from Owen uh, in this episode. I think it's really very astute. And, uh, and of course, it's a way to explain it to the reader as well, what's going on and what that's going to do. But it's really well, very well placed. And there's a, an incredible transition to me between those scenes of uh, massacre in progress or when's realization. Then you see that transition from uh, utter despair with the Holy Sea's emblem crumbling 
to Arvine's single arrow sniping one of the Christian soldiers. To me, it's pure storytelling genius the way it transitions to that because it's one arrow, then two arrows, then ten at yeah. once, then there's Rakshas coming on. And just like that, the tide is turned and the battle takes a completely different perspective. That's really well done. It's really subtle and uh, it, it's beautiful. I love this episode for that. Mm-hmm. It's very cinematic. Yeah. That transition between utter despair to a little tiny thing of hope, you know, just beginning to decapitate and dismember uh, the Kushan generals. I don't know if the general is the right term. Commanders, yeah, you know, <laughs> I guess commanders in the army. I, I, yeah. I really like that transition as well, and just how they they. Um, I liked how Mira depicted how a big army like that. Once you expose that weakness, it's really not as big of a threat anymore. Like they were riding into the moat because they didn't know what else to do. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good it contextualizes the importance of on the ground uh, leadership. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's also in a way using the same tactics the Kushans tried to use. You you cut yeah. the head off. Uh, you know the body doesn't know how to move and just does random shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, Gobbs mentioned it in his last episode um, summary, but I, I didn't talk about it, and I should have. Which is this pensive moment from Silat here, as the as the Tapasa are debating what their what the right move is here, because they're on the precipice of whether they should uh, let Ganishka know or, or side with Ganishka or not, or be on the sidelines or not. Um, and that that all is culminated here. Like Silat doesn't take any real actions in this sequence, mm. but he's there as an observer, and he's kind of making his decision right here. Um, yeah, and it it, it it happens further and into this volume. But you know, this is part of the sequence that leads him to the decision that we later see him take in volume thirty four. So mm-hmm. it, it's a bit of character building for him, and and ultimately the tapasa. It also on. shows, I think, some some uh, level of wisdom on his part because. Not acting when you're part of such a conflict is already an action in and of itself. Yeah. Being neutral, not taking action on one side or the other, that's already an action that has consequences. And so that it's interesting that the tapas are urging him to try and do something. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do that. And he's just like, he doesn't react. He's observing. And then they get closer in to observe even more. And like you said, that informs his later decision for his clan. So, uh, yeah, it's very interesting as far as his leadership skills go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think I fully understand this plan by the Falcons. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. This is not my way of, like, poking at it. I just don't understand it. Like, is, is the idea that the Falcon troops were had always been in these destroyed ships and they'd been sitting there for presumably more than a day? No, no. They, so... The way I understand it, which I think is a correct way, of course, is that they went there maybe, let's say, the previous night or something like that. They hid there because they knew uh, the Kushans would attack from overhead. So if they had mm-hmm. been standing on the cliffs, they would have like they would have been seen. So they hid in this broken ship so that the Pishasha and, and the other troops could not spot them. So they probably waited the night in, in these ships, then went back up. And we see, we think Griffiths was on top of the cliff earlier uh, right. when the sun rose. So he was probably just inspecting the era by himself, making sure everything was good. Then he went back down, waited with the troops. When the battle started, all right, let's roll out. So I think that that's how they did that. It's just to ensure they could do a surprise attack. 
and they, they hid in the broken down ships because if they had just been on the shore, uh, yeah, visible. Yeah, they might have been seen by Daibar, by other uh, Kushan uh, spies, and so on. For example, by the Bakiraka, who did yeah. not know exactly where they were. Right. Anything else about this episode? Uh, I guess we didn't talk about the the number of ways that Mira chose to show the different leaders getting uh, dismembered. Some of them very creative, like <laughs> skewering the eyeballs, like you're going to roast yeah. them on a fire. I mean, the, uh, the, the one with the ear. Yeah, oh, the, the eternal ear, like the cochlear getting getting taken out, was really very specific. It's like yeah, yeah. more specific. And some guy, lucky dude, only his nose was taken. What? Yeah, he's okay. I mean, he's fine. He didn't die from that. He probably died yeah. still, but what a lucky guy. Yeah. yeah. Probably didn't keep his marriage after that. <laughs> the eyeball shish kebab guy. Yeah, yeah. And the one without a human. It's just it's just brains in that eyeball. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I guess it's like you got nine panels. What, eight, X to 12, 13 panels. You got you to gotta be creative here. And they very creative decisions were made. Yeah. And also, <laughs> it's funny because... He's, of course, like the accuracy is in, is like it's inhuman and impossible. Yeah. And the same for shooting 10 arrows at once. Uh, but still, like, I like that there's some variance between where it hits and also what effects it has. Like, some guy, the entire head is taken off, while some mm-hmm. other, you know, like, the skull explodes and only brains and stuff. Some guy, his eyes get taken out. That's ridiculous, but it's so great to see. Yeah, imagine the eyes would probably just explode uh, if they were hit from that force. From that, I don't know. I've never shot an eyeball before. Irvine's just Irvine. that good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. It, what it lends is a sense of precision, even at a distance. Right, that's the thing. And also, they don't know what's happening yet. They, they don't realize. They just know that their leaders are falling. They don't exactly know that they're being sniped necessarily. Like they're in they're in confusion for several pages and in fact into the next episode when Kanishka begins to suspect yeah uh i'll take the next one episode 281 dark horse has it as the flight uh we have it as come flying i don't guess which one's better come <laughs> come flying that's right okay the summary is, uh, as reports of chaos through the ranks hit Ganishka, he begins to suspect that Griffith has entered the fray at Vertanis. And then we see in dramatic fashion that Griffith has indeed entered the fray at Vertanis. His troops emerge on the battlefield from a place the Kushans thought impossible, a sheer cliff face. The surprise affords them a clear shot at their flank, and they hit hard, with Locus and his lancers striking first, then Zod with his pointy raiding party, followed by Grunbeld and his giants, who are able to strike down elephants with their warhammers. That's the summary. Uh, most of this episode is, again, more spectacle, but it's the hero side of the spectacle. It's the uh, the hopeful, we can do this uh, part of the spectacle, right? Different emphasis than the previous episodes where previously it was uh, Holy Iron, sorry, excuse me, Holy Sea Alliance troops being yeah. decimated. Here it's heroic. Now because you were saying Holy Iron Chain Knights, I was going to say it's Farnese, she's back in action. Yeah, here she is. She's in the background. She turned back to lead the armies. She couldn't leave her people behind. She's a very own Joan of Arc. Yeah. <laughs> What's notable in this episode is, of course, how quickly the tables have turned from just what they were an episode ago. You know, we see how the large force of the Kushans can be slow to react to the sudden appearance of these troops, particularly when they're cutting right through an exposed flank that they weren't ready to protect, right? And also because what's emphasized here is that one-to-one, they can't really stop the movements of an apostle army. You know, there are humans here too, 
but I probably my favorite shot, and it's not a two-page spread, is this sequence, uh, uh, this flowing sequence of Griffith yeah. coming closer to the page, and then he gets flanked on either side by uh, mm. apostles. So it's like humans are there, but they are led. The, f- the front force is led by apostles, mm. and they're not going to be stopped, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I also love that, like those three panels of Locus cavalry closing in front of Griffiths and the human. Mm-hmm. The humans, it's uh, like that's when you know the Kushans are dead. Yeah, and the falling, <laughs> the falling two page spread doesn't disappoint because they're just getting skewered. <laughs> yeah, and Zod and his pointy pals jump into. Oh, gosh, those guys are terrifying. It's just their character designs. They just look like. Just some kind of horror movie, every single one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I know how you were saying that, you know, it's sort of like the heroic side winning out, <laughs> but it's also sort of fills you with dread, too. Yeah, yeah because yeah. these guys are more monstrous than the Kushans. So, sure, sure. and I, I do love, you know, speaking of Zod, of course, Zod is great, as usual, always great. I love that shot where he's got his two weapons uh, up in the air and you see the veins on his uh, forearms. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, you know that that hit's gonna it's gonna be painful on the receiving end. Yeah, he's not skipping arm week. <laughs> For real. <laughs> yeah, um, a little bit of Grunveld and his pals as well, giants uh, taking down the elephants with spears and and, and hammers and. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's also. I mean, that's even like a funny moment almost. Like a mm-hmm. whole elephant falls down from one hit. It's like, what? The, <laughs> what is it now? And you see, there's what that general who's like, eh, eh, what's going on? And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's fucking giants here. And uh, that's actually yeah. notable because it's the first time we see Grumble's new armor, shield, and uh, and hammer from after the, the Battle of Roa's Mansion. Oh, cool! I didn't think about that. Well, I mean, the full thing we see him in the flashback, but he doesn't have the full, you know, the full suit. Yeah. Mm. There's one um, interesting way this episode opens up. It's with Ganeshka, um, again, with this. I think we already talked about his hands covering his head again. He's still nursing his wound from the previous uh, yeah. Yeah, attack, yeah. That's where my, be- that's actually where my avatar in the forum was from. Yeah, is that small that's panel. the one. Yeah. Oh, right. No. <laughs> I know it's not the same emotion, but it's perfect. I love it. Um, anyway, as we cut to Griffith, we have this this transition sequence as the wind changes, right? As the idea is the wind's blowing across the fields. And then we see Griffith on the horizon or the uh, approaching. But his, his sights are set for Ganeshka's caravan, which is, of course, where things go uh, in the next in the coming episode. So, yeah. yes, they're saving the Holy Iron, uh, fucking A, Holy Sea Alliance. But they also have a quick way of turning the tables ultimately. Mm. Yes, it's nice that they have apostles at the front mowing down people, but that would probably be tedious and uh, impractical to do that to this entire army, right? So there's a quicker way to stop this battle, and Griffith's heading straight for it. Yeah, they have a specific objective. It's all very well planned, as mm-hmm. as usual, and made possible by having magic soldiers, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I really love, since you mentioned it, I really love that second page with the uh, seagulls at the at the top, then the the waves in the grass from the wind blowing, uh, you, you see Griffiths the, the feet of his horse because Mira is basically delaying, showing yeah. us Griffiths as far as long as possible, and then, bam, full show the flags rise up. Griffiths is there. We get that great uh, single page, full page panel of his face with the helmet. Of course, he looks other worldly as usual. Uh, just, just ma- magnificent. You know, again, very cinematic, like you mentioned. Then you know, lowers the helmet, pulls out the sword, and it 
shown us very slowly and methodically to show how momentous it is. It gives a lot of weight to, to the scene, basically. And it's, of course, su- super well uh, drawn. And again, as a reader, it's just, it's hard to cheer for the guy, but you also can't help but the, the, the art is urging you to cheer for this guy. Yay, Griffith. Yay. <laughs> this guy. Well, he's a fairy tale. It's exactly like the Skull Knight said and so on. He's a fairy tale hero, basically. Yeah. He's a guy who can't lose and who's not made to lose. The story is about him winning. Mm-hmm. And of course, what's interesting about this, I was just getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but. Go for it. I remember people were like, because then he lets Ganishka go. I remember people complaining, why? Is that stupid? Why is he doing that? Like, what's going on? Not understanding, like, what's the point? What, like, what's the point of it all? Uh, just the same way that people were like, why does Griffiths need an army? Why can't he just kill everybody and become king by himself? And as we get to see in volume 34, the point wasn't just to take a throne of some country randomly and just say, now I'm the king. It's a right. bigger plan and a bigger, you know, a whole scheme going on. So that's also an interesting thing to me is the fact that this is a fairy tale and a story that goes beyond human comprehension, but that has designs that also go beyond just saving the princess and, and being the king. Mm. I remember being in that that lurch of not knowing exactly what was coming. And, and I remember not necessarily wanting yet another large scale battle, but Mira doesn't give us just another large scale battle in Wyndham. You know, he gives us like a world changing well, I mean, end of the world kind of battle, you know, there's a large stuff going on there. If you know what I mean, <laughs> something very <Yeah>. large. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think the first hint of that is uh, about actually what would happen in the capital. There was a little, there was a, quite a bit of time, I guess on a volume, we were in the lurch about exactly what would be significant about yet another battle. Uh, but it's when Locus drops that yeah, line. Yeah. And you know the one I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Of course. Even before you said so, I was already thinking about it. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorites. It is fucking sinister. Like his face on it. You have to repeat it because you and I know what the line is, but just. Yeah, it's when he says, soon the sun, a new sun will rise, or the sun will rise on a new world. Basically, the, these human affairs won't matter anymore. Yeah, the, the world as we know it is going to end and a new one is going to start. And Mule is like, uh, what do you mean mm-hmm. exactly? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's also, again, it shows us that, yeah, the apostles understand what's going on. The humans do not. That it, there's something right. beyond uh, just a battle to save a kingdom. Yeah. But yeah, it, Exactly, and and that it is it is a little anticlimactic the way things end in Vertanus, which is funny to say because <laughs> it's not anticlimactic. But I just mean in terms of Ganishka raising his white flag in the end and and, and heading home for a little bit. It's kind of like, well, well, now what? Uh, you know, but obviously there's a reason for it. So yeah, we'll get there for sure. But that's it. That's all we have planned for today's reread. We will finish up volume thirty-two, which we are exactly in half of right now. So we'll finish up volume 32 in the next reread podcast, which should be coming up next month. So look for that. Um, Any closing words? Oh, the Patreon. Um, If you have not checked out our Patreon, we have one. It is patreon.com slash SKNet. All the proceeds there go not to me or Azil, but they go to Puella, our resident translator of all things Berserk. And 
recently, thing, uh, we had two mini pods, um, short podcasts, uh, about 30 minutes or so a piece. If you haven't checked those out and you're interested in getting more of this podcast, please go do that. Uh, you can start getting those for $5 a month. Uh, we put two of them up this month. Um, what was the, oh, the first was uh, wish lists per character. So we picked like, I think it was like, I don't know, 20 characters. Like, what would they want for Christmas? And so we kind of <laughs> made some funny jokes about what would Guts want? What would Casco want? What would Skull Knight want, et cetera. Uh, and then we had another mini pod just on what we've been up to independent from Berserk, what we've been playing, reading, watching one of those catch up episodes. And we ended up talking a lot about Elric as a, as it, as it happens and, and sword and sorcery as a genre mm. is what I remember a lot about that talk. The classics. Yeah. Um, other than that, uh, Azil also started posting something I've been working on in the background, which is kind of just explaining what are the discrepancies in the continuation? Like we've, we've mentioned these kind of abstractly. And if you've been listening to this podcast throughout, you've probably heard us mention all of them one by one over the course of, you know, a year and a half or two. But I wanted to kind of capture them and kind of write them all out to, as, as a demonstration of, well, here they are. And it's not just an abstract notion of, hmm, I don't like this thing. It actually explains why this fundamentally doesn't work or is, or is breaking the precedent for what Mira had set forward in Berserk. So any rule breaking or thing that just is incongruous, uh, I, I list out there and it'll be posted in sequence over the next few weeks or months. Yeah. It sounds really useful. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty fun to write. Like a little bit of research work for that. Mm. But that's it. Again, that's over at patreon.com slash sknet. And thank you for those that subscribe and support Playlist Translation efforts. Without further ado, I'll let you guys go. And thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.